We probably need this, but just from the text today, that's my title. And I want to look at three specific people in these verses, in these chapters, that we need in our lives. When I was growing up, I spent most of my summertime at Grandma's house. Uh, I don't know if that was just because Mom wanted to get rid of me, or if Grandma really wanted me there, or maybe both. But I spent most of my summers as a, a young teenager at Grandma's house. And she lived out in, a, in an area, uh, Mainville, Ohio, if you're familiar with that. But it was before Mainville became big as it is now with all the new homes and stuff. So it was just basically a few houses and a lot of woods and stuff, which was great for me because I enjoyed running around out there. But one of the bad things about staying at Grandma's house was there really wasn't any other kids. It was just me. And so, you know, back then we didn't have social media. We didn't have a lot of stuff. I mean, we did have some video games, but not much. And so you had to get, you know, now listen to this. You had to go outside, and you had to use your imagination. Imagine that, to try to figure out how to have fun and enjoy your day. And I'm glad I grew up in that time, not faulting anybody that didn't, but I'm glad I grew up when I did. But I remember one day I was, I was bored. You kids get bored. There's only so much you can do, and then you get bored, right? So I was complaining to Grandma that I was bored. And I remember looking out across her front yard, <clears throat> and there was a a kid that I had never seen before, and he was out there throwing a ball up in there and catching it. Of course, I loved baseball back then. That was the thing I loved as a young kid more than anything. And so I just stood there at the window watching him throw that ball, and she finally said, why don't you just go out there and introduce yourself and make friends with him? And I was shy and backwards anyway, but, you know, when it's another kid, it's not quite so bad. So I remember going out there and talking to him, and next thing you know, we were playing ball. And then, you know, about an hour later, I come back in the house, and she said, well, you didn't play long. And what happened? I said, I won't be friends with him no more. We got into some kind of argument already, and that was the end of it, you know, in the moment as a child. That was the end of the friendship. But as I looked at this text today, and I thought about this in my own life, you know, there's a lot of acquaintances we have in life as kids. You know, they don't, we don't understand the depth of a real friendship. But even in life, people come into your life, People go out of your life for seasons. But there is, if you're blessed enough to have one or two, maybe three true friends in your life that hang in for the long run, you're, you're blessed to have that. And I believe that as we start into chapter 19, we see a friendship between two folks that, are, that has been kindled and will remain until, until death. If we were, I won't go back and rehash everything we've talked about, but you remember that David had killed Goliath, and it had made him become pretty famous amongst the people of Israel. And it made Saul furiously angry at, at, at David because of him getting all the praise and accolades and stuff. But what, it, what we notice, if you flip back one chapter to chapter 18 and verse 1, it said, Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This was a true bond that was formed. There was a mutual respect. They had many of the same desires in life. They were both uh, men that loved the Lord. They were both men that served God uh, and served the king in, in the army. And so, I mean, they had a lot in common. And they became the closest of friends. And so, if you're taking notes with me this morning, I want you to see one of the people that we all need in our lives is we need a friend who will influence us. Write that down. We need a friend in our life who will influence us. Jonathan was that person for David, and David was that person for Jonathan. 
And reading through these chapters, and I'm not going to read all of it, but I encourage you, I hope that you've been reading through 1 Samuel as we've been doing this series, and I encourage you this week to really spend some time on verses 19 through 20. Because man, oh man, you know, things have gotten a little rocky for David already, at least on a personal level, between him and Saul. I mean, David has done his best to remain calm, cool, and collected through all of this. Saul's tried to kill him a few times, and yet David just continues to do godly things and to be obedient Saul sent him out into battle trying to get him killed out on the battlefront and God has been with David protecting him and Saul's just getting madder and madder remember we talked about the envy that's just eating him up inside and envy will do that to anyone who allows it to stay in their life and so it's going to get worse before it gets better for David and a lot of times, guys, you know, we have, we have heard and maybe we wrongly believe that becoming a Christian means things are always going to go good for us, that we're never going to have any trouble, that because God is good and God is love, He's going to just clear the way, and nothing will ever harm us, hurt us, or upset us. And it doesn't take long to figure out that that's not the case at all. And so things are getting really bad. Just look, just look at the beginning of chapter 19. Like I said, I'm not going to read all of this, but I just want you to see how things are progressing. Saul spoke to Jonathan, so Jonathan is, is uh, Saul's son. Saul speaks to Jonathan, his son, and to all the servants. So remember, this at first started out, it was just Saul angry at David, and Saul trying to personally take care of this thing. That's not been working out, so now listen to what happens. They, they, he talks to his son and his servants that they should kill David. So now he's got everybody else that he can possibly bring into this thing involved. And he said, listen, I don't care who does it at this point. Somebody just get rid of this guy. I can't stand him. I don't want to look at him anymore. Somebody please remove him from the earth. And so we see that happen. But look at the end of verse 1. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. He wasn't going to turn his back. He wasn't going to betray David, even for his own blood. He loved David enough and he loved to wanted to do the right thing enough to where he was not going to turn his back on David I hope that you're fortunate enough to have someone like that in your life I hope that God has put someone in your life that is a true friend that will be there for you through thick and thin that is somebody that you can count on I want to give you a couple of quotes this morning one is from a, a writer named Alan McGinnis wrote a book called The Friendship Factor Listen to this. This is, this is why I have a burden for men. I don't believe that God's called me to be a men's ministry leader per se, but I'm trying to do that right now at this church until God raises that person up. And here's one of the reasons why I'm burdened for men. Listen to what Alan McGinnis writes in The Friendship Factor. America's leading psychologists and therapists estimate that only 10% of all men have any real friends. I'm going to read that again, and you think about it. America's leading psychologists and therapists estimate that only 10%, look around this room, one out of 10 men in this room, have any real friends. R. Kent Hughes is a pastor and commentator, theologian. He has a wonderful book. I encourage you to get it, Disciplines of a Godly Man. Men's friendships typically center around activities, while women's revolve around sharing Men do not reveal their feelings or weaknesses as readily as women. They gear themselves for the marketplace and typically understand friendships as the acquaintances made along the way 
rather than deep, meaningful relationships. Like I said, guys, we have a million people come in and out of our life on any given weekday, you know, month, year. But those aren't true friendships. We need someone that will influence us, that will be there for the long haul, that will help us through the good and the bad. Because God created not just men, but women too for community. We need each other. That's why the church is so important. We need the friendships, the common bond in Christ that we can only have in a local church. And it saddens me so today because we've isolated ourselves as society. People don't go outside like they used to. They don't sit on the porch. They don't know their neighbors. Everybody stays inside all the time for the most part. And so we become so accustomed to being isolated that when we talk about gathering together for worship, we say, now just stay home and watch it on the little box that takes up so much of my time. Put the box down sometimes and get face-to-face with real people. That's what you were created for. You see? We need that. And so, I thought a lot about friendships because, listen, as we sang in the song, and, and, and one of the things that it brought out was, we've all been friends with people that have let us down and hurt us. And if we're honest, we've been that person at some point in our life. Right? It works both ways. It's not always everybody else. We're guilty too. But what happens a lot of times is when, when we get hurt, especially if it's a deep hurt by someone we were close to, then we become very skeptical about friendships ever again. We put up the walls and we are hesitant to ever think about letting anybody else back in again. And I, I, well, I understand we need to be cautious and discerning and have some guardrails. We have got to be willing to let down the walls and let people in if we're ever going to love the way that God wants us to love. You can't love people at arm's length all the time. You can't keep everybody at a distance and love them the way that Jesus loved you. Jesus didn't hold you back. He embraced you while you were yet a sinner. He died for you. He loves you. And He calls you to come to Him. And we have to love people in the same way. So we can't be skeptical and cautious all of our lives. So when it comes to having a real friend, I think there are some things that we need to be careful about, but also we need to let down the, the walls and let them in. Proverbs twelve twenty six says, The righteous should choose his friends carefully. For the way of the wicked leads them astray. Church, hear me. Young people, hear me. Don't give everyone access to your heart. Do not allow just anyone to come into the deep, intimate, close places of your life. Not everyone in your boat is rowing. Some people are drilling holes. That's a fact. You have got to be cautious and careful about who you let in to your life. Not skeptical of everyone, but definitely cautious and careful. Because the Bible says that iron sharpens iron, friends. And one man sharpens another. We need each other. We need someone that will influence us in a godly direction. A true friend for a believer is going to make you more like Christ going to challenge you to be more like Jesus. It's not going to tempt you and persuade you to do things that would lead you away from God. That's not a godly friendship at all. And so if someone's in your life pulling you in the wrong direction, you need to question whether or not that is a person that needs to remain in your life. I don't care how much you like them and how much they make you feel good when you're around them. I'm talking about what is it doing ultimately for the spiritual well-being of your soul. That's more important than how you feel in the moment. Okay? And so, 
A true friend is not just going to make you feel good all the time. A true friend is not just going to tell you things that you want to hear. A true friend at times is going to call you out on things you need to be called out on. And it's a lot of times where we say, well, that, that's, it. that's like me with the, the kid, you know. Why, I'm not friends anymore. You know, we're done. You said something I didn't like. No matter how true it was, I didn't like it. Therefore, I'm cutting you out of my life. Listen, take heed to good counsel. And if it hurts you, but it makes you more like Jesus, thank God for that. And thank God for that person in your life. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Listen to what it says there. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Better for somebody to call you out on the carpet than to pretend that everything's okay when it's not. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Somebody that always tells you what you want to hear is not ultimately doing good for your soul. We all need people at times, pastor included, for, for people to come to and say, Hey, I've noticed something in your life. Now listen, speak the truth in love. Do it with gentleness and meekness. Don't be arrogant and self-righteous and think that you are better than everybody. But come to people in humility and love and say, I love you enough to say this to you even though it's not easy. That's a true friend. You need those kind of people in your life that will influence you for good. Proverbs 17, 17 says that there is a friend that loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. They're going to be with you through the good, the bad, and the ugly. They're going to stick by your side like the Lord Jesus does. He goes with us through the valleys and the mountaintops and that is a true friend. And we can only hope and pray to have someone like that in our life. A real friend that walks in when the world walks out. That's what we need. And Jonathan was that person for David. And David was that person for Jonathan. But David is in such a valley right now that I don't know how much support he could really offer Jonathan. It was kind of one-sided right now. And there's times in life like that, right? Sometimes we get mad when we text somebody and they don't text us back in an instant or, you know, we do something for somebody. But listen, sometimes we don't understand where people are at and we just got to show them a little grace. If somebody's in a valley and they're struggling, guys, and they don't get back with you in 2.2 seconds when you text, there might be a reason for it. Don't just get mad and say, well, that friendship's over. You know, we got to be a little bit gracious in the way that we deal with people because David is going through it. I mean, now everybody is, is got, you know, after him. They're ready to kill him. If we were to read down through this a little bit more, remember when he, when he killed Goliath, Saul had made a promise that he was going to give people three things. He was going to give them wealth, he was going to give him his daughter, and he was going to give him a tax-free life. And so now David is married to, to uh, Saul's daughter, Michael, and she, she initially says, listen, my dad is going to kill you. I'm going to get you out of here and make sure you're safe so that nothing happens to you. And so that sounds good, doesn't it? Like she's really trying to do the right thing, and she's really trying to help him out. But then later on, Saul comes in. He's, he's asking her where, where that David is, and she says, well, he's sick in bed. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, just bring the whole bed down here. That's what, literally, he's like, just go get the bed, him in it, bring it down here. I'm getting rid of this guy. And so then the truth comes out, and he says to his daughter, why did you do this? Why did you do this and help him escape? And she throws David under the bus. She said, well, he was going to kill me if I didn't do it. So now he's got all these people against him. His wife is now against him. Saul is against him. And he's on the run again. I encourage you as you read through 1 Samuel, just take note, maybe jot it down, underline Look how many times you see the words in front of David's name or after David's name. He fled or he's fleeing. 
I mean, for years of his life, that's all this guy does is run around. Constantly. Trying to go here and go there for doing nothing. He didn't bring this on himself, guys. And when you follow God, trouble will follow you sometimes. You may think, where is the Lord? He's walking with you. But that doesn't mean that trouble is going to be at a distance. It'd be right there too. And everywhere he goes, it seems like things are getting worse. But God provides some things in his life. He provides protection. He provides blessings. He provides a friend. And he provides something else. And this is number two. You can write this down. Not only do we need a friend to influence us, we need an elder. And when I say elder, I'm talking about someone in the faith mature. Not necessarily somebody older in age, although it often can be that. But we need an elder to instruct us. We need an elder to instruct us. There was a story of two boys in a cemetery under a big walnut tree. You ever collect walnuts when you're a kid? They might get to do that. Some of you might remember that. They were under this big walnut tree in a cemetery, picking up all these walnuts, putting them in a big bucket. And it got so full that a couple of the walnuts tumbled out of the bucket and rolled over near the fence. And so they're still going, trying to collect all these things. And, and they're in there, divvying them up between each other, as kids often do. And they're saying, one for you, one for me. One for you, one for me. And they're going back and forth doing that. And this other kid rides through the cemetery and he can't see him, but he hears these voices and he stops and he listens and he hears one for you, one for me. One for you, one for me. And he is scared to death. He thinks to himself, he says, oh my goodness. He said, Jesus and the devil are here in the cemetery and they're dividing up souls. And he said, I have got to get somebody with some wisdom to come down here and tell me what's going on and what to do. So he runs on his bike around the corner and he goes to the old man in town who's always sitting out on the porch. And he gets the old man. He said, you have got to come with me. The, the God and the devil are down at the cemetery dividing up souls. And I need you to come down here and listen to this and tell me what in the world is going on, what we're supposed to do. So the old man gripes at him a little bit and finally he decides to come. They walk down there and they stop at the gate and they're listening. One for you, one for me. One for you, one for me. And so the old man decides, he said, I'm going I'm to have a little fun. With, he's thinking to himself, I'm going to have a little fun with this guy. And so he, he says, well, let's go in a little closer and see if, if we can see the devil. Let's see if we can see him in the, in the Lord down there. So they start to go through the, the gate, and all of a sudden it stops. The one for you, one for me, it stops. And they, they look at each other, and then they hear the voices again. They say, well, that's all of them. Let's just go get those two nuts over there by the fence, and then we'll be done. <laughs> the story goes that the old man beat the young kid on the bike back to town again. I say all that in that funny story um, to say that just because somebody's older doesn't always mean that they're spiritually mature or going to be able to help you in things. But a lot of times, age does give us experience, and with experience hopefully comes godly wisdom. In Titus chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it talks about how the older men and older women in the, in the family of God ought to behave themselves. It says, Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. Listen, they must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. America is the oldest society in history. As we have been blessed to live longer, people are getting older, and America has more people 65 and older than any other time, any other place in history. Now, you might think, well, 65 
is not that old and, 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 and I'm not arguing with you that it really is not in today's world. So I won't put a number on what you want to call old. I did find a good quote by Bob Hope. Some of you might remember Bob Hope. So this might help you to decide if you're old or not today. He said, you know you're old when the candles cost more than the cake. I'll just leave it at that. I'm not going there anymore with the age thing. But listen, if you're here today and you are older, or maybe you're just more mature in the faith, we need you. There's people in this church that need you. There's young people in this church that need you. There's young people in the faith that need you. They need your influence. They need you to instruct them. They need your wisdom. Listen to what Job 12.12 says. Wisdom is with the aged men and with the length of days understanding. We need that wisdom that comes through living a life uh, devoted to the Lord and following Him through those experiences. You guys who have been doing this like the song we sang, Don't Regret a Mile. Some, of, some folks in this room are brand new Christians. They haven't even walked a few steps yet. They don't know about walking a mile with the Lord. They're just starting. They need to hear from you what it's like to walk mile after mile with Him through the good times and the bad times. Because the first time they hit a rough patch, they weren't expecting that. The first time they step in a pothole, they didn't see it. And they're going to need somebody that's fell in plenty of those holes along the way to help them through the times. That wisdom, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with betrayal? One of the hardest things, I think, for a young Christian to learn, and you'll all learn it if you haven't already, is guess what? You will get hurt in church. I never knew that. When I got saved, I thought, good gracious, I joined the church and this is heaven on earth. We'll love each other. We'll never argue with each other. We'll agree on everything. We'll serve the Lord together with gladness. We'll sing with smiles on our face. It took me about two services, the morning and the evening of that first day I was there, to figure out that's not how this works. And that's hard for a young believer. Because you're on fire and you want to just go out there and do everything and then you look around and some folks have just settled in and been complacent and don't want to do it anymore and they want everything their way and you see people complaining about people are supposed to love or talk about each other and that's hard when you come into church. But it happens, I've never found a church yet where that doesn't happen and it'll happen here too. I'm sure it is already and it will continue to happen because there are sinners in the room that are going to sin and there are Christians in the room that are going to get in the flesh and sin. But young believers need to be taught. How do you handle that? How do you respond to that? What do you do? And I believe the wisdom that comes from a lot of the more mature saints will help us do that. There's another story for you. Kind of paint a picture in your mind. There was an elder. I didn't write this, by the way, so excuse the names. This is just what the writer used for the names. An elderly physician named Dr. Geezer. He became very bored. He was retired and he got bored. And he decided to reopen his medical clinic. He put a sign outside and it said, Dr. Geezer's Clinic. Now listen to this deal he had going. Get your treatment for $500. If you're not cured, I'll give you back 1000 Pretty good deal, isn't it? So here's another doctor in town, Dr. Young. He was positive that this old geezer didn't know anything about medicine like he did. So he thought this was going to be an easy opportunity for me to get $1,000 in my pocket. So he goes to Dr. Geezer's clinic. Here's what happens. Dr. Young says, Dr. Geezer, I have lost all the taste in my mouth. Can you please help me? Dr. Geezer says, Nurse, bring me the medicine from box 22. Put 
three drops of that in Dr. Young's mouth. She does that. Dr. Young says, oh my goodness, that's gasoline. What are you doing to me? He says, congratulations, you've got your taste back. That'll be $500. (laughs) So now Dr. Young is upset. He's mad. So he goes back next week and he says, I'm going to get my money back and then some. I'm going to figure out how to get one over on this guy. So Dr. Young says to Dr. Geezer, he says, Doctor, I have lost my memory and I can't remember one thing. Dr. Geezer's calm. He says, Nurse, bring me the medicine from box 22 and put three drops in this patient's mouth. And Dr. Young looks at him and says, Oh no, we're not going to do that again. I know for a fact that that's gasoline. And Dr. Geezer said, Congratulations, you've got your memory back. That'll be another $500. So by now, he is furious. Dr. Young's lost $1,000. He leaves mad and he comes back the next week and he says, this is it to himself. I'm going to get him this time. He says, Dr. Geezer, my eyesight has become very weak and I can hardly see anything. Dr. Geezer says, well, I don't have any medicine at all that I can give you to help you. So here's your $1,000 back. And he hands him 10 bucks. And Dr. Young says, wait a minute now, this is only $10. And he says, congratulations, you've got your vision back, that will be $500. You see where I'm going with this. You see that oftentimes the older people have wisdom and experience that far surpasses what we, when we're young, think think we know everything when we're young. Parents, amen? Kids know everything, right? Anything, the kids know it already. Can't tell them nothing. But it doesn't take long for us to figure out that the older generation, the older I get, the more I value the older generation. Because they have a lot to say and a lot to say that matters. And we, we ignore that when we're younger, but we shouldn't. We need your wisdom. You need somebody in your life that will give you wisdom. Number two from that, you need the example of an older person in the faith, a mature person in the faith to instruct you. Psalm 145 verse 4 says, One generation will praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Again, one of the biggest blessings to me over the years has been to get a chance to serve alongside of folks that have been saved and walking this road longer than I've been alive. And I can, I can still see in my mind certain people. I'll never, as long as I live, forget George and Peggy Martin. I'll never forget them. Because there were times, especially towards the end of their life, where they didn't always feel good. The eyesight is failing. The body is failing. But there was never a time where I visited them where all they talked about was wanting to come to church. And when they were able to, they were here. I'll never forget another couple uh, that I went to church with when I first got saved. Uh, Art Downing. Some of you might remember Art. He was around for a long time. He was a little bit younger than Methuselah, I think. And we used to, from time to time, the worship leader would say, has anybody got a song on your heart? And he'd sit in the back like good Baptists do. And he'd shuffle up that aisle, you know, his little steps. I mean, he couldn't hardly walk. And he'd come up there, no music or nothing, but, buddy, he would sing for the Lord. And I'll never forget folks like that and how much they've helped me. Because when I would sit around and think, I don't want to go to church, I don't want to serve, I'm, I'm done with this, I'm done with that, I'm busy with this, I'm too busy for that, I'd think about those folks and i think, man, they got a real excuse to not be here. I'm just sorry 
if I'm being honest, I'm just lazy. I just don't want to go today. And I think, you know, Art Downey's been doing this for decades. George and Peggy's been doing it for decades. And I would listen to people talk about them and the legacy that they left, and I thought, man, I hope I can leave a legacy like that too. If God allows me to live half the time that they have, I hope that I can make a difference in somebody's life too. If I can't find two hours in my week to show up and be an encouragement to church, there is something way too much going on in my life that if I can't give God that little bit, I've got to find the time and make the time to do that. Because it ain't just about us, guys. We're part of a body here. And every part of the body is important. And when you're not here, you're missed. And the body can't function without all of its members. So you matter. I don't care if you don't think you do. I don't care if you're not sure what you're supposed to be doing. God has a purpose for you. He's brought you to this church, and we want you to be a part of this church. We need your example, especially the ones that have been doing this for a long time. And we need your encouragement. Last one, Psalm 37, verse 25. It says there, I have been young, and now I'm old. Yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. We need to know that when life gets tough, like it did for David, that God's going to see us through. You know, a lot of us are hitting storms right now we've never been through before. We've never seen stuff like this. We've never lived in a world where there's so much trouble. And maybe for some ways you're saying, well, I haven't either. But you've been through things that we haven't. And God's brought you through the other side. And we need to hear again the stories of how faithful God is. We need to know and hear from you about what God's done in your life. One of the things that I wish happened in every church more and more is, is people would have the courage to stand up and testify about what God's done in their life. You know? If God's done something good in your life, the last thing you should do is keep it to yourself. I think that what, I, I, I'm convinced that one of the things would bring revival in so many of our churches is to just hear God's people get up and testify about how good He is. Because a lot of people are on the fence thinking, well, I'd, I might take that step of faith, I might do that, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. They just, they don't have the faith to step out. But if they see your faith, remember it was the four men and their faith that carried the paralytic to Jesus. You might not physically pick somebody up and carry him to Jesus, but your faith might help carry somebody to make the step they need to take. That's the difference you can make. We need an elder to instruct us. If you've got wisdom, if you've walked this way for a while, please invest into someone in this church. And if you're young and you need help, seek somebody out. If you're just starting out in marriage, find somebody that's been married for 50, 60 years and say, hey, can I meet with you and sit down? Can we meet with you and sit down? I want to know what makes a marriage successful. How do you last 50, 60 years? We're just starting out and we want to know. If you're thinking about serving in church, find somebody that's been doing that for a long time and say, hey, how do I remain faithful in church when everything goes bad, when I start up a ministry and I think there's going to be 100 and I got two? How do I endure? How do I not get discouraged? What do I do? Find somebody that's been through those valleys and talk to them and draw encouragement from them. You need it. We need a friend to influence us. We need an elder, someone mature in the faith, to instruct us. The last one is one that we don't want, but believe me, we need it. We need an enemy to increase us. What do you mean by that? You don't have to look for enemies. They'll find you. So that one's the easy one, right? You don't have to go searching for that too hard. If, if you're serving God, you're going to have enemies. I can guarantee you that. But some of our growth in maturity church can only come through suffering and trials. There's things that you're going to learn that will only come through the difficult times. And I think that's why suffering is spoken about so much in the Bible. Because it's necessary. Jesus suffered. We're going to suffer. We need that. 
It molds us and refines us. It, it is the thing that burns away the dross, if you will, and makes us pure and undefiled. I thought about, you know, even in, in nature, the oyster. It's a, an injury that takes place for that oyster to form the pearl. If it didn't get the injury, it never would have formed something beautiful like a pearl. I think about the coal in the ground and the pressure that's exerted on it before it finally becomes a diamond. We need the injuries. We need the suffering. We need the pressure of life sometimes for God to make us into the people of God that He wants us to be, to learn the lessons we need. Luke 6.26, Jesus says there, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. One of the hardest things for me as a human being is to not be a people pleaser. I was an only child, and I think because my dad wasn't always there and mom was busy doing things, I always learned in my mind, I think, to try to earn affection, to try to do things to make them proud and make them notice me. And becoming an adult, you carry some of that baggage into it with you. And it's hard sometimes to not try to make everybody happy. But I'll tell you one thing, if you do any kind of leadership, those two things have to be opposed to each other. You can't lead well and make everybody happy too. <laughs> I'm telling you, you'll drive yourself crazy and ultimately one of the two is going to win out. You have to love everybody. You need to listen to everybody. But you have to follow what God puts in front of you. And, you know, there's a quote, I don't even remember who the quote's by, but it says, preach the gospel, whether it fills up a room or empties it out. And I learned, I'm, try, I'm still learning, but I've learned quite a bit along the way to say that I'm going to stay faithful to this book. I'm going to stay faithful to God. I've lost plenty of people over the years because of that. There's been people that have told me I won't be back because I disagree with what you've preached. And all I can say is I hate to see you go, but you're going to have to take it up with God because this is what His Word says, and I'm not going to change it to make you happy. I don't care how much money you give. I don't care what position you serve in. Does it hurt the church when you leave? Sure it does. But does God give you back tenfold? Yes, He does. So you've got to stay faithful and trust Him, church. And you need those enemies in your life to learn those kind of lessons. You have got to have them in your life. Jesus said to love our enemies. Jesus said to pray for our enemies. And the problem is, what I've seen at least in my life, and I'm going to say it's probably true in yours too, when we're sinned against... The tendency is to respond back sinfully. Is it not? Because in the moment, in that moment, especially if you didn't see it coming, you just react. I've not met a person yet that doesn't to some degree just react when they're, when they're caught off guard. If somebody punches you in the gut, when you catch your breath, you're going to come back swinging most of the time, right? You're not going to say, well, thank you for that. Do it again, you know. And so, I mean, it's, it's natural for us in the flesh to want to respond in a certain type of way. But the enemies, when they do those things to us, if we'll stop for a minute and say, what does my response say about my own heart? That's not easy. That, that comes with wisdom. That might be something you need to have a conversation with one of the elders about to tell you how to get to that point. But when I'm done wrong, when an enemy does something to me, we focus on what they did to us. But maybe if we didn't focus so much on what they did to us, but whether what's our heart say in those moments, we'll learn a lot about where we're at, spiritually speaking. Because when you can get to a place where you're not affected by others the way you used to be, you're growing in a good way. 
you're growing in a good way. But you need those people in your life. You need the critics. Don't just surround yourself with people that tell you good things and pat you on the back all the time. You need people that will criticize you. And don't put too many people in your life and don't give them complete access to you. But don't always just despise people that criticize you, that come against you. Learn from them. Learn what not to be. Learn what not to be. I've learned a lot about how to be a pastor by seeing pastors that didn't pastor well. And that's no knock on people. I'm not putting them down. But I've seen pastors do things wrong. And I've been that pastor. I want to learn from those things. I don't want to sit in corners and gossip about how bad they were. I want to be better so that I don't make the same mistake mistake they did. You see, we need enemies in our life. I titled my message, Three People That You Need In Your Life. But there's one person above all that you need in your life. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. You can surround yourself with friends, elders, enemies. If you don't have Jesus, none of those things really matter. The most important person you can have in your life is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not just talking about a Sunday relationship where you come to church and hear about Jesus. I'm talking about a real, lasting relationship where He knows you and you know Him and the difference in that relationship is He's made you somebody that you used to not be. And He's still making you somebody that you used to not be. It's impossible for you, my friends, to say that you have met the glorified, risen Jesus and not be changed by that. Can you imagine if Paul on the Damascus Road was, was thrown to the ground and the light shine, and he was blinded and all the things that happened, he heard a voice from heaven and, and all those things happened and then three days later he got his sight back and he went back to being the same old guy that he was and went around and said, I met Jesus, I'm a new person, hallelujah. They'd look at him and say, well, you're no different. You're the same guy. I don't care what happened to you out there on the road to Damascus, you are not any different. And I see people all the time and say, you'll never believe who so-and-so got saved. They signed a card, they came to the altar and cried, they testified. And I'm not their final judge and jury, but I say, well, I'm not trying to be skeptical about everything. But years and years go by, and I see them still running with the same dummies, doing the same stupid things, falling into the same sins, cussing the same way I did before I was lost, hanging around with the people that they shouldn't be hanging. And after a while, you've got to conclude... I'm not too sure that you met the same Jesus that I did. I'm not sure that you understand who Jesus really is because if you've got the Holy Spirit in you and you're still able to do that with no conviction and no desire to be different, I don't know what your Bible says, but my Bible says that God forbid we should ever sin again. Don't go and sin no more, right? If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. So I'm just challenging you today. I don't care if you've made 100 professions of faith. I'm asking you today... Is there evidence in your life that you have been changed by Jesus? Or is this just a religious thing for you? Is this just a box to check off? Is this just something you do because mom and dad tells you to, that you're trying to make mom and dad happy, or you don't have a choice right now? Or mom and dad did it, and so now you're older and you just are keeping the tradition alive for your kids? I'm asking you today, do you know Jesus? If you died tonight and stood before him, are you ready for that appointment? That's the most important thing that you can ever ask yourself. And if you can't honestly say, yes, I am ready today if God calls me to stand before Him, to be there with Him. If you're not ready for that, you have got to come by faith. That's the only way. I'm not here today to tell you to be better, act better, do better. I'm telling you to surrender your life to Jesus. Surrender yourself. You can't do this. None of us can. You don't work your way to heaven. You believe your way in. 
You've got to come by faith. And you can do that today. He says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm going to invite Phyllis and Shane to come, and we're going to give a heaven of invitation. If you're lost today and God is dealing with you, I'm telling you, don't put it off because you're not guaranteed another opportunity. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to be as honest with you as I can. God is not obligated to keep coming back and say, here I am again. You want to try this again next week? If he's knocking today, I would answer. I would answer today. And that doesn't just go for your salvation. That goes for anything. If he's calling you to be a pastor, if he's calling you to be a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or a trustee or just somebody that takes the garbage out on Wednesday evenings, if he's calling you to do that, it matters. Because it's God calling you. It's the person on the other end of the line that matters. Not what the job is. You don't have to say, well, can you call me back when you got something better? I don't feel like doing that one. If he's calling you, I would listen. To join the church, to get baptized, whatever it is, I would listen today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for putting people like that in our lives. And if we don't have them, Lord, I pray that we will pray for you to put those kind of people in our lives the friends, the elders, the enemies that we need, and we would learn from them and grow from them. And God, most of all, I pray that you are in our lives, not just on a temporary basis, but that you are in us, that the Spirit is sealed within us, and that we are walking with you every day. Lord, help us now at this time of invitation. God, let us respond in faith, and we'll praise you for everything that happens. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and as